The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he is also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Just the same, Father. Great yeah, to good be to see you. Yes, great to be back with you. I understand, Father, you wanted to ask for some prayers first before we begin today? Well, yes, there are uh, more than a couple intentions. I'll just mention a couple by name, though. But uh, I see everyone to pray for Stephen Sajarto and uh, also for uh, Philip Shetty. Uh, both men are quite ill, so please keep them in your prayers. There are so many others, too, who need your prayers. Uh, God knows who they are. Even if you um, just offer a prayer every day for the intentions of the priests, you can be sure that all the intentions that come our way, we commend to God, and you can back us up in that by uh, asking God to uh, uh, re favorably regard our intentions too. Whenever I, I get a request for prayers for someone who's ill or uh, suffering some great hardship or carrying a heavy cross, I always refer it to our Blessed Mother's Immaculate Heart, and I ask Our Lady to carry that intention in her heart. So even if it's not possible to name everybody, I, I ask our Blessed Mother to present to our Lord all of those intentions in her Immaculate Heart, and that covers everyone. Our <laughs> Blessed Mother doesn't forget anyone, right. <laughs> ever. So. Okay, great. Thank you for that, Father. Have a few things on the agenda for tonight. A couple uh, viewer email that we wanted to discuss, and then also some uh, current social events that are going on in the world mm -hmm. today. Uh, but I thought we could start with uh, some viewer email, Father. Something that we intended to get to last program. Um, so I thought we could start with that. Uh, we had a question about the single vocation, where a viewer wrote in and asked, "What are the specific duties of the single vocation?" She says, I feel there is much information about the religious and married vocations, but there seems to be very little concerning the single state of life. Too often it seems to be viewed not as a calling from God, but rather as a negative circumstance where someone doesn't have a calling to the religious life and has been, quote, passed over by eligible marriage prospects, thereby forcing them to be a, quote, unquote, old maid. Do those in the single vocation have an additional responsibility to the church, either financially or by volunteering their time? As a parent, I would like to be knowledgeable on the duties of all the vocations so that I can accurately guide my children as they reach adulthood. So how would you answer that, Father, in regards to the single vocation? Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting this question is asked by a parent. Yes. So someone who I believe is married and has had children, and I guess he or she uh, is... Uh, well, and I gather it's a lady, too, yes, yes. in the reference to the old yes. maid, um, is concerned about how to advise her children uh, as far as the vocation goes. Yeah, it's true. The Catholic Church has recognized traditionally uh, three large vocations uh, that uh, should encompass, encompass all, if not most, of the human race. We have the 
Um, the vocation that the church holds up to be the uh, absolutely the most perfect, that is to say in itself, uh, the most perfect vocation which involves leaving all things and following our Lord, right? Our Lord says to the rich young man, if you want to be perfect, he says, if you, if you want to save your soul, if you want to have everlasting life, keep the commandments. <clears throat> but then our Lord says to him, if you want to be perfect, then go sell everything you have, give to the poor, and come follow me. So lead the, the apostolic life, as it were. And um, the young man said he had been keeping the commandments, so I guess he was saying that, well, I expect then that I would be able to save my soul. But when our Lord proposed perfection and leaving all things and following him, the young man balked at that because he was heavily invested in the world and the world was heavily invested in him. He was very rich. <clears throat> um, so there is that vocation of leaving all things behind and going to follow, follow our Lord with, uh, uh, with all your life, with, right? With all of your attention, with all your focus and uh, with, with the ultimate objective, of course, of loving God perfectly. So um, that, the church said, is the, the most sublime of vocations. But it's not for everyone. God is not calling everyone to do that. God is not calling everyone to live the three evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience, which make up the very substance of their religious life. The, um, the others are, are called to be married. You know, um, One might say, well, there are those who would say the vast majority of mankind are called to be married, although there are those who were saying, uh, even in the Middle Ages, that uh, probably seven out of every ten persons had, had a vocation to the religious life. So, um, St. Paul himself has not given us a proportion as to how many are called to this or how many are called to that mode of life. In fact, he seems to make it contingent upon the circumstances prevailing in the world at the time, which we can talk about in a second. Um, but there is also a third category and those who are called neither to the consecrated life nor to the married life. And uh, is that an, an actual vocation? Is it, as our writer says, they're merely a a negative, um, let's say they, they just didn't enter the religious life or weren't accepted. Uh, they didn't get married or weren't accepted, so they kind of lost out. And so they're um, by default, um, you know, having to live a, a, a single life. The church says that the single life actually is a vocation, that God actually designates some people for that single life. <clears throat> And um, um, this is what our writer is talking about, a question about the, the single life, and what kind of a vocation would that be? Well, every vocation is a life of service, right, as I've mentioned before. And as a life of service, it is a life of service to God. The single life also is meant to be a vocation, and therefore a service, a life of service to God. And as a life of service, it is a life of sacrifice, necessarily. So the person who is called by God to the single life uh, may not have chosen that as, as his or her first choice, but it, it may become very clear to that person that the single life is really what God wants of me. And so rather than pining away and feel sorry for myself, I mean, there are some who, who would willingly choose the single life, uh, very happily choose the single life as a vocation. <clears throat> um, you know, you go back to the early persecutions of the church, notably under uh, middle Datius in the middle of the of the second century or the the third century, about two fifty A.D. 
And there were those who gladly left the towns and followed our Lord's injunction to go out into the deserts, out into the mountains in times of persecution. <clears throat> and they chose a solitary life, and they were very happy living a solitary life. Okay. Uh, in fact, those who, who chose that life out of the deserts of the Tabayid or other parts of the world um, found that they often would go out there to be alone, and they would not be alone because there were others who would come out seeking that life to join them. And so what started as an eremitical life, the life of hermits, would sometimes grow into monastic life where they would live singly and yet they would also be in a kind of community of those living singly out in the desert. And uh, what kind of grew out of that was the monastic life, you know, form of the religious life. So when we, when we talk about the religious life, we're actually talking about a form of the single life. But it's a form of the single life that is especially dedicated and consecrated to a certain pattern or manner of life um, in community and uh, with a, a rule of life governing them. One might say that the, the ultimate single life was being led by the hermits out in the deserts in times of persecution in the East. And uh, what came out of that was the religious um, orders of monks and, and nuns who chose a life of consecration to God, but they lived in communities, curiously enough. That's what we know as the religious life today. There are those who are actually called to the single life, and that is a life of service. I mean, someone who is called to the religious life is often uh, involved, well, they can take, they take vows, okay? They take the religious vows, and those can be solemn vows, or they can be simple vows. I won't go into a big explanation of that. <clears throat> the religious orders uh, have solemn vows, and uh, they bind um, more strictly, you might say, uh, than the simple vows. The religious congregations have um, simple vows, okay? They, they, again, they, they do bind in, in conscience, obviously, but they still... Um, have a certain level of, of that binding nature, so to speak. Excuse me if I'm not speaking very clearly, but I'm trying to simplify it as much as I can, going into a lot of detail. But, uh, for, for example, I mean, the, the person who takes a solemn vow of poverty in a religious order has actually surrendered the right to own any private property. The person who takes a simple vow of poverty in a religious congregation has not, has not voluntarily surrendered the right of private ownership as a sacrifice to God. They still can retain property, but whatever property they have is at the service of the community, as long as they are there uh, with that community. And um, so there, there is a, a difference in the, the nature of the, 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 the binding nature and, and what it requires of the person who makes the vows. <coughs> but... Um, in, in any case, the, um, the single life uh, does not bind one to follow a certain rule as it would in the religious life. You know, you enter the religious life, you, you make vows of obedience, and the vows of obedience are not to a particular superior. They're vows of obedience to the, um, the rule, the constitutions, the statutes governing that... Uh, that institution, you know, the, that religious order or that congregation. 
And uh, everything else fits into place with that rule as to who was an elected, the legitimate superior. You made a vow to follow the rule, and that includes, includes recognizing the authority of the, of the duly chosen superior and everything else. So you're following a way of life is what it is. You're actually bound to a way of life. Um, we uh, see that in the married life, of course, there are many obligations that are all spelled out. One who's preparing for the married life has a couple of serious decisions to make. He or she has to decide whether or not to get married, and then whether or not to marry this particular person. Now, the choices, decisions to make, very, very serious decisions, clearly, which will determine pretty much the course of their whole lives and ultimately whether they save their souls or not. There's nothing that can so um, uh, kind of determine whether a person is going to save a soul uh, in this world, in, a mar in the married life, as the decision of who to choose as one spouse. Because if you, when you love them, you give them tremendous power over you to either make you happy or make you sad, to help you or to hurt you. Right? They have access to your heart and your soul. And uh, so that gives a tremendous amount of power. St. Francis, St. Alphonsus Liguori talks about the, the gravity of the choice of getting married and whom to marry and the, the everlasting impact on that decision, right? Um, but, but the obligations of marriage itself are all spelled out. You know, it's very clear we have marriage instruction that goes on for 10, 15 hours sometimes for people preparing to get married. And uh, we, we can give in great detail exactly what the church expects of them in the married life. Uh, when they make the marriage vows, they for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and health until death do us part. We can't predict whether it will be for better or for worse, in sickness or in health, whether it be richer or poor, but we can say that regardless of which it is, this is what the church expects of you. So while they have the, the ability to choose the married life, they don't have the ability to choose what the married life requires of them. They are bound by the married life as God gave it to us and as he established it. But the, the person who chooses a single life, <clears throat> it is insofar as it is a choice, a decision that this is God's will for them, <clears throat> and they bring their will into alignment with God's will, they, they basically have to provide a rule of life for themselves. They don't have a, a rule of life... Uh, provided by St. Benedict, for example, or, or one of the great masters and leaders of the, the uh, founders of religious orders. So, um, so they, they have to uh, develop a, a certain amount of self-discipline. Um, but they also have to find uh, what God wants them to use their talents and their energies to do, to accomplish, because it's all about accomplishing something for our Lord. A vocation, again, a life of service. So the person who believes that God is calling him to the single life uh, has to determine what it is that God wants me to do with the talents and the energies that he's given me. Um, and um, that requires a lot of prayer, uh, asking a lot of guidance. Now, one thing that the, uh, the writer mentions here, or, or did they? Somewhere, I... I, I maybe it wasn't in this particular question, um, but about taking care of children, um, what do I apply myself to? Well, you take a, 
you know, someone in the single life there who has talents that could be used for uh, the education of children. I mean, this is uh, an extremely important role. One cannot overestimate the importance of that role. Um, in fact, uh, just last, last Sunday I talked about the uh, first encyclical of Pope Pius XII, Summi Pontificatus, and talks about the challenges being faced by the faith, by the church in the world at his time, we're talking about 1939, as the first guns of World War II were sounding across Europe with their ominous death rattle, right? And um, Pope Pius XII makes a very special application to the need of the, the education of the young and those who can do it. And um, the church has always regarded that as the highest of the arts, the artis, artisium, the the art of arts, influencing children for the, for, the, for the good and raising them to have a good conscience. St. John Bosco, whose feast day we just celebrated, St. Uh, Francis of Sales, also whose feast day we just celebrated, were dedicated to that in special ways. So, uh, you know, those who are called to the single life might well say, well, this is what God wants me to do. He wants me to dedicate my life to this purpose. <clears throat> Others might say, well, I, I want to go into research and I want to, uh, you know, develop therapies and medicines and I want to try to find cures for various diseases. I want to devote my life to one of the seven corporal works of mercy or one of the seven spiritual works of mercy. They might decide I want to devote myself to all of the seven corporal works and all of the seven spiritual works of mercy. But you see, in the single life, they can do that. In the single life, they can, they can actually choose that course according to the talents and the energies that God has provided for them. And uh, they can accomplish great things in doing that. In fact, if you were to, um, you know, one might say, well, that's kind of the default vocation. Well, not really. You know, the whole world admires somebody who says, okay, I'm going to devote my life to finding a cure for cancer. I'm going to devote my life to finding a cure for, for some other disease that is afflicting people, these parasites who are consuming uh, people because of the um, foul water that the villages consume, um, carrying off their children at a young age and so on. And, and the whole world admires someone like that who's a, what they call a philanthropist, right? Um, now, they might be motivated by a love for God, but they might be motivated by love of self, saying, I want to satisfy myself, that I'm a good person, and I can do this for myself. They could be atheists, just with that motivation. Um, they could even, uh, you know, be in, involved in uh, atheistic organizations. They could be involved with the Masons, for example. Uh, in which they, uh, which the church itself has said is a kind of an organization that is a naturalistic religion. And they want to uh, just have something to prove. <laughs> but they're, they're not motivated in any way by love for God. Um, so uh, there's no supernatural charity involved in a case like that. But a single person who's, who's motivated by a supernatural charity and a love for God, such as we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, can actually gain a very high level of sanctity. 
by this and be admired, admired not only by the world for their philanthropy, uh, but actually uh, have a great reward in heaven because they are motivated by the two great loves, the love of God and the love of their neighbor. And so that means that the love that motivates them is something supernatural and sanctifies them. That's what God really intends by calling someone to the, to the, to the single life. Uh, that in a sense they devote themselves to life, um, to lives that depend on them, that they, they devote themselves to service of those lives that are dep dependent upon them, like the married state, but they also devote themselves to prayer and to mortification and other things that would be proper to the religious state. And um, so in a sense, they have lives that are very much taken up with the goals of both those vocations. You know? um, as I was going to say a minute ago, I mean, there are those who consider the single life to be a default vocation that you, default meaning you, you do, through no fault of your own, you, you couldn't become religious, through no fault of your own, you didn't get married, so therefore, default, <laughs> you're single. If you were to go back through history, though, and eliminate all of the contributions made by those who lived in the single state of life, the world would be impoverished. I mean, those who lived in the single state of life in the world have enriched the world itself, but the church also, in a very, very, you know, again, particular way. Um, by the way, I, I, I should state also, when we first come into the world, we are all in the single state of life, right? I mean, until someone enters religion, makes the vows of poverty, chastity, obedience, or is consecrated, for example, to the priesthood, to the divine service, and still, until one does that and makes that attachment, one is necessarily in the single state of life. And after a spouse dies, once again, we return to the single state of life. So, um, for the vast, for all of us, we all start in the single state of life, and for at least half of us, we end in the single state of life, right? Even those who are married. Um, um, so, in any case, um, one could see that God has a predilection for the religious state, but then if the church were to ask, be asked the question, well, which is the perfect state of life for me, the most perfect state, the church gives the answer, the most perfect state of life for you is the state of life to which God calls you. It's what he wants you to do for him in this life. Mm -hmm. And um, so, for example, the mo most perfect state of life uh, for me is the consecrated life of the priesthood. For you, it's the married state giving life, nurturing that life. But both of us depend very much on those in the single state of life who are kind of like the shock troops, who uh, are like the light cavalry. I mean, they're there, right, to fight the battles of the church where they are most needed at any given moment. And again, you know, God sees that that is necessary for the good of the church and for the good of society. And uh, so he does provide those who are called to that, called to do that. Um, 
St. Paul speaks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is a very interesting segment of St. Paul's epistle, lengthy epistle to the Corinthians, his first epistle to the Corinthians. And in this particular segment that we call chapter 7, he talks about the married state and the single state. And uh, now he also talks about this in Ephesians, his epistle to the Ephesians. We actually use this, that part of the epistle to the Ephesians as the epistle at the nuptial mass, okay? But this is very interesting in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 because he talks about the married state and the single state side by side. In fact, it'd be worth reading the whole thing. And, um, well, maybe this is a serious question and it involves so many people the married and the unmarried, maybe it wouldn't be such a bad idea. Should we take a secret ballot? <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> well, he starts out in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 by saying, Now concerning the thing whereof you wrote me. So that's interesting. Somebody from Corinth evidently wrote St. Saint Paul about this very subject. And he's responding to that communique that he received there. He said, It is good for a man not to touch a woman. But for fear of fornication, let every man have his own wife, for let, and let every woman have her own husband. Now, he doesn't mean let every man get married and let every woman get married. Let everybody have a husband or a wife. Some misquote that and go off the, the rails here. What he's saying is, for the sake of purity, maintaining purity, marry. He makes it clear after that. <clears throat> Um, let the husband render the debt to his wife, and the wife also in like manner to the husband. The marriage debt is marital relations, okay, such as apt to produce a child, to give life. The wife hath not power over her own body, but the husband. And in like manner, the husband hath not power over his own body, but the wife. And this is exactly what the church teaches, that when May people marry, they give rights over each other, and in giving those rights, they're bound in justice to render those rights to each other. So they surrender that control or the, those rights to each other, and all for the sake of giving life. Okay? Defraud not one another. In other words, defrauding not one another. Don't deny the marriage rights to your, to your spouses, except perhaps by consent, by mutual agreement. For a time, a limited time, that you may give yourselves to prayer, and then return together again, lest Satan tempt you for your incontinency. So again, he's talking about those who marry for the sake, for purity's sake. But then he goes on and he says, but I speak this by indulgence and not by commandment. He says, but is not commanded to marry, obviously, for I would that all men were even as myself, he was single, right? He was living, you might say, the single life. He said, I would that all men were even as myself. Now, he doesn't say that this is actually God's teaching, that he wants everyone to be single either, okay? But he's speaking here, uh, and he's, he's saying that I speak, saying this thing of myself, he says. But everyone hath his proper gift from God one after this manner, and another after that. So here he says, you know, each person has a vocation, and God is calling him to his own proper vocation. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, 
It is good for them if they so continue, even as I. But if they do not contain themselves, meaning restrain their passions, let them marry them, okay? Then their passions will be put to God's service in giving life. For it is better to marry than to be burnt. Okay, so it makes it pretty clear here that the sins of impurity end up in hell. In another place, St. Paul says, Make no mistake about it. Let no one deceive you with vain words. No fornicator, no fornicator or adulterous person or an idolater, a covetous person, this is a serving of idols, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. It makes it very clear. Sins of impurity are what the church has said. Lethal, mortal sins. And they do lead to the damnation of the soul. So St. Paul says... If they can't remain continent, then they should get married. They would then use their uh, natural passions, actually, in the service of God, and it would be sanctifying to them and do a great service to God and bringing life to them. He says, It is better to marry than to be burnt, but to them that are married, not I, but the Lord commands that the wife not depart from her husband. So, um, again, you know, as our Lord said, you, you cannot put away your wife and take another, nor can you put away a husband and take another. And he continues, and if she depart, that she remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband. And let not the husband put away his wife. For to the rest I speak not the Lord, but if any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she consent to dwell with him. Let him not put her away. So again, he's talking about someone who has the faith, is a member of the church, who has a wife who is not. And he says if she, an unbeliever, consents to live with her believing husband, then he is not to put her away. And he says if any woman hath a husband that believeth not, and he consent to dwell with her, let her not put away her husband. So he says it applies to the wife. If she's a believer, if she's a Christian, her husband is not, let her not put him away because he's not a member of the church. That doesn't give her the right to separate from him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the believing wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the believing husband. Otherwise, your children should be unclean. But now they are holy. But if the unbeliever depart, let him depart. For a brother or a sister is not under servitude. When he's talking about brother or sister, he's talking about those who are actually Christians and living with in the, in the church. Is not under servitude in such cases. But God hath called us in peace. So this is what we call the Pauline privilege. That if, if uh, one is married, if one who is in the church, and one is a faithful Catholic in this case, and uh, the other one is not a Christian, not baptized, not a member of the church, and they choose to leave, and they will not live at peace with the one who is uh, trying to be faithful to Christ, then under certain circumstances, the church does have that authority granted here, as St. Paul speaks, to uh, allow them to marry in the church. Okay, But it's a special privilege. It's not a right, certainly. But this is the foundation of that statement for uh, that St. Paul gives here for the idea of a Pauline privilege. But he continues, 
For how knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? But as the Lord hath distributed to every one, as God hath called every man, so let him walk. And so in all churches I teach, is any man called being circumcised, let him not procure uncircumcision. Is any man called in uncircumcision, let him not be circumcised. So again, this is where he's talking about the Judaizing tendency, the desire that everybody should become Jewish before they can become Christian, especially the men in this case. So again, he's saying that God has called each one individually. And he says that uh, that ritual of the Old Testament does not apply anymore. Okay. Um, but it, anyway, to continue on the point at hand here in which this, this writer has asked, wast thou called, well, he actually talks about being someone being called as a bondsman or being called as a freedman. I'm not going to get into that right now. But he says here, now concerning virgins, concerning virgins, I have no commandment of the Lord, but I give counsel as having obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. I think, therefore, that this is good for the present necessity, that it is good for a man so to be. He's talking about virginity here. Art thou bound to a wife? Seek not to be loosed. Art thou loosed from a wife, seek not a wife. But if thou takest a wife, thou hast not sinned. And if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. Nevertheless, such shall have tribulation of the flesh. And this is where I think he gets into the, toward, toward the end of this chapter, uh, pointing out why he is urging virginity as the better course. It's as though St. Paul here foresees trouble and persecution on the horizon. And he sees those who are married as being entangled and they can be put to the test and suffer more uh, because of their attachments to those of the world in a time of persecution. Here's what he says. Um, they such shall have tribulation of the flesh, but I spare you, he says. I would spare you this. This, therefore, I say, brethren, the time is short. It remaineth that they also, who have wives, be as if they had none, and they that weep as though they wept not, and they that rejoice as though they rejoice not, and they that buy as though they possessed not. He's talking about a time of persecution where even the things that we have we're going to be denied. He says, And they that use this world as if they used it not, for the fashion of this world passeth away. But I would have you be without solicitude, in other words, without care or anxiety. And you know, as a married man, how your anxieties over your wife and your children and their welfare would be, you know, uppermost in your mind, under your faith and your devotion to God, uh, in a time of persecution, a time of great hardship. You know, we just experienced in the last century two world wars, and you think about the anxieties of mothers and fathers, right, and the family members caring for each other and being so uh, filled with anxiety for each other as life and limb, you know. 
And St. Paul is though seeing the, the, the storm of uh, persecution coming, says, I would spare you all this right now. That's why I say that the advice of the church would seem to somehow correspond to the circumstances of the world at the time and society, whether saving one's soul, one would be better off living the single life in times of war and persecution, whereas in times of peace and prosperity and tranquility, there one might be called to the married life more in order to raise families and to enjoy the benefits of married life and all the spiritual benefits as well as the material benefits. So you can kind of see why St. Paul might, and I think he does here, um, you know, uh, talk about the single life in a time of strife and time of time of uh, trouble being um, preferable for many uh, to be spared the the sorrows and the anxieties of being married and have a family at that time. Nonetheless, I mean, God always calls people to the married life, even times of war and trouble, right? It takes a great deal of heroism to live a holy married life in times like that. It takes a, a very great graces from God to do so. So anyway, uh, one can read this First uh, Corinthians chapter seven and, and see. I'm, I'm not going to continue to read it to the end. It is it is certainly applicable though what he says um, about a man being married being solicitous for his wife and a woman being married being solicitous for her husband. <clears throat> but that gets back to what I was talking about these kind of attachments here in the world, which can really put a lot of pressure on a person who's trying to be faithful to our Lord at the same time he's trying to take care of a family too. Mm -hmm. Uh, one might say, well, today we're going into these very difficult times, so maybe this is one of those times that we follow the admonition of St. Paul, that he might ad admonish one to, who thinks he has a, a choice to make, to choose the single life under the circumstances today. I don't know. I just encourage anybody uh, who is trying to determine by the grace of God what his vocation is, what God wants him to do, to read First, uh, first Corinthians chapter 7. And if anyone is, feels called to the married life, to read the epistle of the Ephesians chapter 5. Mm -hmm. Father, with the single vocation, it seems there's a uh, peculiar uh, issue uh, with that because in the other vocations, let's say the, um, the, the priesthood, uh, the day that one is ordained, he knows for certain that his vocation is to the priesthood, that with uh, a religious, um, the, the moment he takes his, his solemn vows, we know that he has a, a vocation to the religious life. Same thing with the married life. The moment he is actually married, he knows he has a vocation to the married life. But how does one know for certain that they have a vocation to the single life? Because it seems at any time uh, that this could change. They could mm. believe that they have a, a vocation uh, to the single life, and yeah, they could find a, a potential spouse that, that comes along into their life. So how, do, how does one uh, live with this uncertainty of, of not knowing? Well, it's true. Once you, make the, once you make the vows, especially the permanent vows, you know that's your vocation. God will give you the grace to live that, uh, especially if you chose it with good intentions, right? And as, as soon as you're ordained, right, you know that God is... Uh, going to provide the graces you need to live a holy life and die a holy death and save your soul in that vocation. Um, 
So even if you were in doubt before, up to the moment that you actually are ordained to the priesthood or the moment you actually are, your vows are received by the church, you don't know. I mean, they, you, the community could decide you don't have a vocation to be religious here in our community or in our order or congregation, or the bishop could uh, call you in, you know, just moments before the ordination ceremony takes place and say, I don't think you're called to this, you know. Uh, you, you, you don't know, okay? Just as you're walking down the aisle, you know, the person you're walking down the aisle to stand before the altar with, uh, when, when, when the priest asks them, um, wilt thou take, you know, Tom here, present as your law husband, the woman says, I will not. <laughs> you, know, you just don't know. Uh, uh, with absolute certitude. Hopefully you have some sort of uh, confidence in any case. <laughs> Um, but once you make the marriage vows, you know that God has called you to live those marriage vows. Mm -hmm. You're right. There is no such moment of truth, as it were, for the single life. <clears throat> but again, all, all the more reason why a person who uh, is, is living the single life has to be pretty much like the light cavalry and have to be prepared whatever God sends to that person. Um, but say you, you take the case of a man or a woman who says, well, I see uh, what's involved in the religious life, and I really do not feel an attraction to that life, and I don't feel that God is calling me to that, as far as I can tell. And it's not just a feeling. I have actual reasons, a work of the intellect, producing reasons why I don't think I'd be suited for that life. And um, But they might say, well, look at the married life, and they might have equally good reasons or better reasons why they're not called to the married life. And so they might say, well, that's an indication to me that I believe I'm not called to the married life and I believe I'm not called to the single life. And uh, so I am going to live the, the single life uh, at this moment. That's not so much by fault, default, but it's a decision I've made that this is what I'm most suited for. And um, they, uh, but the, the point is that at any given moment, uh, they might discover that they are called to the married state. And they might call to discover that they are called by God to the uh, religious state. I mean, it, it actually happened to St. Ambrose. He was sent as a catechumen. <laughs> Uh, but also as a, as a uh, functionary of, of the Roman state to quell the conflict in Milano. Their bishop had died and they were in the throes of trying to settle upon a successor. Well, the people got involved. Many of them were Arian heretics, unfortunately. Others were Catholics and Nicene Catholics who believed in the, the Blessed Trinity and the divinity of the Son of God. And uh, so there was a great dispute going on. And uh, the emperor being very concerned about peace in the, in the, uh, in the empire. And uh, also, you know, the local magistrates being charged with maintaining peace and order. Sent Ambrose as a kind of lower level functionary of the government to try to secure peace. And he was a dip very diplomatic. And he spoke so eloquently and so beautifully to all concerned that actually, uh, eventually they agreed that he should be the bishop. Right. 
He was only a catechumen. So he was sort of uh, just uh, nominated and the uh, civil magistrate over him uh, said, that's what you should do. Don't you hear the voice of God calling you for this? Now, he was a single man, right? Perhaps living very happily as a single man. But it, he actually bowed to what he considered to be uh, the voice of God. It wasn't like the vox populi, vox dei, and the voice of people is the voice of the people is the voice of God. But he saw that this is God's will for the sake of the peace of, of, uh, of the Catholics there, and he exceeded that. And he was day by day ordained to, to the minor and major orders, and eventually, and then consecrated the bishop. And you know the result. He became one of the leading lights of the church, uh, the mentor of Saint Augustine. And uh, all of the fruit that he accomplished there, just because he was ready to answer the call when the call came. So one who is single cannot say, okay, well, I'm called to the single life um, forever and ever. This is the, the last word on it. I'm here to serve, and I will serve in any way God, God calls me to serve. One might, why would one decide, for example, that I'm, I'm not called to be uh, to the married life? Let's say you have somebody who's a short temper and um, is not particularly, you know, enamored of children, right? And um, finds that he's just not suited for that. Let's say somebody is very abstract in his thinking, and he's a philosopher, and he he doesn't really. Uh, focus on material things. When you're a, when you're a parent, you have to do that. Um, when you're when you're a father and you're a husband, you have to provide for this family. You have to have some kind of means of income. And there there might be some individuals who are very abstract and uh, very much given to theoretical life and uh, you know inventions and uh, abstract thought and mathematics or. Uh, you, you name it. Um, and they might think, well, you know, I don't have just this practical presence of mind to really be the father of a family and take care of children. Um, my mind drifts too much, and I, you know, I go off on these whatever. Uh, so I just don't think I'd be really well suited for that. Uh, maybe my nerves are, are too uh, sensitive, and I, I get really nervous too easily. So obviously, in raising a family and raising children, that could be difficult for me to um, to overcome that. So maybe I'm not ready now in the present situation. Maybe my health is such. Maybe my health is such that I'm not really capable of of supporting a family. Right. Uh, so there are a number of reasons why a man or a woman might say, "Look, I I, I don't think I'm called to the married life just because of my state of body or state of mind." And uh, someone might say, well, with regard to the religious life, my health is very fragile. I mean, living the religious life is more rigorous than it might appear, <laughs> okay? And um, because you have to live the rule. Um, and um, that imposes certain burdens on, on the person physically, emotionally, mentally, and so on. And, um, <clears throat> you know, the word mission, you're on a mission, it means you're sent. Well, that was applying to the church before it necessarily was applied in, in the military. You're on a mission. And uh, that requires focus and it requires a lot of sacrifice. And uh, 
and often health. They say that the requirement is physical health, and you know one has to have the emotional stability, um, and one has to have the mental capacity to learn what is necessary, the religious life, the priestly life, and one has to have the spiritual, uh, just the spiritual goodness, the moral goodness to love God and want to love him more, and finally, completely. Um, you know, one might find that with a religious life, let's say I, I prefer to be left alone, I prefer to just be in my room, I prefer to be studying and given to my books or whatever, working on this or working on that aspect of a problem. And I'm not really called to a community life. It's one thing when you're called to the community life of a family, but there's a community life involved in the religious life that can uh, also, uh, you know, a, there's a certain wear and tear on that because you're living with others. Uh, St. Teresa actually kind of gives us a glimpse of that when she talks about kneeling for meditation in the church and the nun next to her is banging her rosary beads against the pew. And little things like that can be a little irritating when you're trying to focus on your meditation. St. Teresa talks about how she dealt with that in, in a graceful way. But it, it's kind of a glimpse that, you know, there are things like that that happen. In a religious community, you have all kinds of personalities drawn together. They're, you're not related to them by ties of blood. They're not your children. They're not your wife. You chose your wife. You chose your husband. You didn't choose your kids, but you love them more than life itself. But in the religious life, you don't have those bonds except bonds of faith. Somebody who might prefer the solitary life, might find entering a religious community to be a little bit much for them. So in other words, I'm just saying that somebody could say, I'm not cut out for this, I'm not cut out for that. That being said, I would say if one is going to be a priest or a sister, um, there th that person's life is probably going to be tied up in dealing with the people. And uh, so a priest doesn't become a priest because he says he hates kids and wants nothing to do with them, and so I'm just going to be a priest, or I'm a misogynist, I really don't like women, I want to get away from them, so I'll be a priest. Well, they'll be a terrible priest. And anybody who would be a good priest has to love women and value them for who they are and have a great admiration for them and a great respect for them, and children too, have a great love for kids. So they can't uh, choose a vocation based upon an aversion, right? Um, that's, that wouldn't be right. It's a matter of a love. Uh, that draws them. A, a man who becomes a priest doesn't become a priest because he hates children and and detests women. Not at all. Quite the contrary. Um, he just decides that God is calling him to another life. And uh, you might say a, a higher love you know, calls him to that. Mm -hmm. So uh, anyway, we started out just talking about the single life. We wound up talking about different vocations inevitably, I guess, because they're inevitably drawn in um, to all such discussion. But it's important to realize that there are those really who are called by God to live the single life. And their presence and their contribution is indispensable mm -hmm. to the life of the, every society, whether the civil society or the ecclesiastical church society. Mm -hmm. Father, if I could just ask one more quick question about the, uh, the single life, because we had an, an email about this. I thought was was definitely relevant. Um, you know, you you mentioned that the the single life is an actual vocation um, that would seem to make it a very good thing. But why, uh, Father, does there seem to be some kind of negative 
uh, stereotype or our viewpoint of the single life sometimes. You know, this, our last e emailer referenced the, the old maid stereotype, and we had another uh, mm -hmm. viewer um, talk about, you know, a, an, an unmarried woman, someone who doesn't marry. It, it almost sometimes society would seem to look down on them like they're cursed or something that they weren't able to to find a, a spouse. Why is there this kind of negative stereotype sometimes of, of a single vocation and how do we how do we get rid of that? Well, you know, the funny thing is, well, it's not funny, actually, but funny in a ho-ho sort of way, in a hmm sort of way, that there are people even who are not very happily married who still will wonder how some people didn't get married. And uh, I've actually had married men tell me, you know, when I first when I first got married, I, I, I thought, how can you priests live a life like that, a celibate life like that? Now that I'm married, I've come to understand more and more that that's really the way to go. <laughs> um, and um, but you know, the thing is, I, I think a lot of it has to do with the perspective of the married people. Once I was. I made a kind of joke. I thought it was kind of a witticism uh, about uh, married life. And the married man I was talking to said, well, that's a fine thing for a priest who encourages us, you know, to be married and happy in our married life, to make a joke, you know, about marriage and the hardship of marriage. He was kind of poking fun at what I had <laughs> said, poking fun. And I, I just told him, look, I'm just, I'm just repeating what you married people are telling me about the hardships of married life. You know, that's all. You're the ones who are spreading these stories here. Um, and, um, but uh, I think part of it is because of the perception of people being married. No priest or religious, I think, would, would ever have that idea that someone who is older and not married has somehow missed the boat. Quite the contrary, right? But a married person might have that idea, oh, it's so such a shame that, you know, Penelope or, you know, whatever, never married because um, she might have made a great wife and she must be very lonely now. And then they're kind of interpreting how she must feel in light of what they, their vocation. But I think probably the, the worst perception of that is in the part of people who are single and don't want to be. As I mentioned to people, look, it's difficult to be single when you don't want to be, but it's a hundred times more difficult to be married when you don't want to be. Okay, so if you haven't married badly, thank God who preserved you from that, because that is much much worse than not having married anyone at all. Say <laughs> that's probably the hardest thing of all, really, the hardest thing of all for anyone. But uh, when you have single people who pine away uh, somewhat noisily about how they feel, they've been left behind, they've been left out of life because they want to marry and they can't find the right person. They thought they found the right person, but the right person didn't think they were the right person. And so they feel as though somehow they are on the shelf or they're in the fridge, you know, and just uh, chilling there. Uh, neglected and forlorn, that, that is pathetic. It's sad to see people like that who feel that they uh, are yearning to, to live another vocation um, for whatever reason. Um, you know, you, you kind of wish well, that they would settle down in the vocation that they have at the moment. 
if they would just settle down in the vocation of being single for this day and not be thinking, what else should I be doing? What else should I be doing? And so they're not doing what they should be doing, but they're not doing what they could be doing for the good of others. <clears throat> they're just pining away because they're not doing what they something else they want to do. And I think they almost locked themselves into that situation. You know, you get people in their late 20s and early 30s or mid-30s and they're married, and they might feel as though, oh my goodness, the ship sailed without me. But what they really need to do is to focus on, okay, right now I'm single and this is what I can do and this is what I should be doing right now, not just uh, lamenting the fact that I'm not married at this age. What I find is that uh, over and over again is that those who don't make the mistake of marrying the wrong person too early, that they will find if they just wholeheartedly throw themselves into living their single vocation, and devoting themselves to the service of God and the service of others, that they find the right person, that the, the right person is provided by God who recognized them as a happy, cheerful, well-adjusted person, the kind of person they would want to marry. And then maybe at the age of 30, you know, in the early 30s or mid-30s, they marry, and they're so grateful to God that they didn't make a mistake, that they didn't uh, jump the gun and, and just out of desperation leap... Uh, you know, out of the lifeboat that they were in um, and just uh, settle. You know, the worst thing you can do is settle because if it's not this, it will be nothing. It's this or nothing. That's a terrible way to choose a vocation, especially to get married. And I, I do find that people who are lamenting to me when they're 27, 28, 29, 30 years old, oh, I, I just feel as though I'm kind of left out. I find that if they if they really do uh, not allow themselves to be left out, if they, if they will not sit on the sidelines, if they get involved in helping in so many ways, they find just the right person for them, and they're so happy. And uh, God blesses those marriages because they were willing to wait for His call. Mm -hmm. okay. So it's, it's unfortunate, um, but, you know, then you, again you'll find some older unmarried women or men who are very happy and very content, and uh, almost relieved that they were able to get through life being happy and content without kind of getting into the maelstrom of uh, a vocation that they were not called to. Mm -hmm. uh, they dedicated their lives profitably to accomplish good things, and they have a lot to show for their lives, whether and not in the priesthood, not in the religious life, not in the married state, they still have a lot to show for their lives. And they are loved, and they love. So um, we should just embrace that as, as a, a calling from God uh, and go from there to say, what can I do, Lord? What, what, what do you want to be? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, thank you for that, Father. I think that's some great advice we can find very practical, very useful. Um, I know you had several... Uh, current events and social issues that you wanted to discuss tonight. I don't know if you uh, want to take the time to do that now, Father, if you want to save those. Really well, it's a, it's a, we're already an hour <laughs> into the program here about this one subject. It's a very broad subject. It involves a lot. And uh, so uh, perhaps we can uh, uh, not go on to other things right now. I, I would like to. Like, there are a lot of things going on right now, like the truckers in Canada, uh, George Soros saying he's 
contributing $125,000 million to the election of Democrats, the super PAC he wants to, we don't call it collusion, of course, when you have a, a billionaire like him pouring millions of dollars into influencing an American election, right? Uh, the Democrats would never call that collusion, okay? Uh, but it is, no doubt about it, certainly is. And uh, with the truckers, I mean, we don't know what where this is going to lead, but uh, I think we should pray for the fact that there are those who are finally standing up and saying, we reject your mandates, you know? We will not be governed by mandates. This is the antithesis of a, a society where there is true liberty. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we have to pray for all concerned, okay? And, of course, there are many other things that they want to establish Satan clubs in the schools. In fact, one of them was right here in Lebanon, uh, outside Ohio, where they're establishing in an elementary school a Satan club for after-school activities. And uh, this is the way things are going right now uh, in the world, and it should be very much a concern to us. Uh, there are so many others, I, I, I can't bring all of these up, but I, I would like to make one point if I can. You know, we were talking about um, the single state of life, and the single state of life is sometimes referred to as a state of liberty. St. Paul refers to it. You're not married, you're in a state of liberty, he says, right? And that's an interesting uh, expression that he uses there, because we all love liberty. Our liberty is very important to us, you know? And, uh, but liberty has to be invested to be worth anything. Those who marry have gone through their entire lives building up to the point where they have maximum liberty. They have their own bank accounts, jobs, they have their own cars and often apartments and, uh, you know, all things being equal, they have as much liberty as they can have as far as going where they want to go, eating what they want to eat, you know, relaxing as much as they want to relax and so on. And they, they actually think maybe, well, I'm going to throw it away when I get married, but they're not. They're investing it. Liberty is a fungible good, meaning it has to be used to be worth anything. You have to use your liberty and apply it to something good. You make an, invest it, an investment, and you invest your liberty in a chosen spouse and in raising a family. And um, that makes it a, a great investment when you choose wisely and you live uh, wholeheartedly in your married life, and you have loving children uh, whom you love so dearly, you've taught them how to love and they respond to that. That's a great investment. I mean, who could possibly complain about an investment like that? Who would say, oh, I, I still regret having given up my liberty to do this? Somebody who has a loving family doesn't think like that. If they think like that, they don't have a loving family, that's for sure. The same with a priest, you know. A priest doesn't go around grumbling or a sister, a religious sister doesn't go around saying, oh, gee, I threw my liberty away in making these vows and now look, I'm stuck. <clears throat> well, somebody like that is a, is a, would make a terrible nun or a terrible priest. Um, now, maybe we've actually seen people like that in the Novus Ordo. Uh, of course, I don't know if they take their vows very seriously anyway. But uh, I remember even growing up, uh, you know, there, there were sisters who were so happy in their vocation. They didn't grumble because of the liberty they'd given up, because they'd obliged themselves to follow a rule for the service of God. And that service was their joy. And you saw that in them. They saw that 
not as a surrender of their liberty, but an investment of their liberty in something that was really worth doing. So it is, we talk about spending. We spend our liberty, we spend our lives. We talk about spending lives, spending money, spending time. It's spending these things, right? Well, with the case of somebody who's in a single life, they also are in the state of liberty, but they have to find a way to invest their liberty in something that is really of great value to them, that is prized uh, and worthwhile to them. And if they do invest their liberty in that very good thing, whatever it might be, um, but uh, uh, hopefully something of faith, hope, and charity, uh, they will never look back. They'll never regret for a moment. Even if later on God calls them to marry and God calls them to religious life at some point, they will never look back at the time of their liberty when they were unmarried or unconsecrated, <clears throat> when they were single, and regret that. They'll not regret a single moment of it because they made the most of it. We have to remember that it is our Lord Jesus Christ who alone can give us liberty, right? Our Lord says, the truth will make you free. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life, personally, right? And he says to Pontius Pilate, for this was I born and for this I came into the world to bear witness to the truth and everyone who is of the truth heareth my voice. The fact is that the truth and the truth alone can make us free. The truth of faith frees our intellect from error, right? and illusion, and delusions. And uh, that's where we have to start with the liberty and the freedom that the truth gives us. Um, because everything else is a lie. And every lie, well, binds in servitude and eventually kills. So we have this um, matter now that is that is we're, we're actually struggling through right now. I mean, I, I, will, I would tie this into... Uh, the plans that are being made for us. And when I talk about the truckers and I talk about Soros and I talk about these other things, I'm talking about, and, and even the Satan clubs, I'm talking about um, where uh, the leftists want to take our whole society, each and every one of us, with it. And they want to take us into a, into a great servitude. They want to take us into a great servitude where we, we have no liberty. They promise liberty, but Satan does it. He promises liberty, just as he promised Eve and Adam, Eve that she would be as God if she defied God by eating the forbidden fruit. Satan promises liberty, but he delivers only servitude. And so it will be with this so-called great reset, right? So it will be with, uh, you know, the, the promise you will own nothing and you will be happy. Um, it's, a, it's a lie. It's a big, big, bald-faced lie. But it involves this. The purpose of all of that is exactly the purpose of Voltaire. It's exactly the purpose of Nubius writing in the permanent instruction of the Alta Vendita about infiltrating the church. And that purpose is to annihilate the very memory of Christ and Christianity. They stated the purpose we have to annihilate the very memory. We have to obliterate even the memory of Christ and Christianity from the face of the earth. This is what their purpose really is. This is why this, this whole replacement theory, that they want to just replace the, the, the peoples of the earth, you know, like our, ourselves, it's ultimately uh, it all directed against Jesus Christ to obliterate his memory. 
Now they're not satisfied with just burying the corpse that they took down from the cross. Now they want to drive him from the face of the earth, from every mind and every heart of every human being everywhere, forever and ever. Uh, this is much more, uh, shall we say, thorough than anything the Pharisees and the Sadducees dreamed of doing, right? Or any persecutor. Now, uh, you know, you'd have to go back to, well, I don't, I don't know if there's a precedent in history for the persecution of Christianity, of Christ, of the church, that could parallel this persecution right now. The annihilation and obliteration of the very memory of Christ in, in every single mind and heart of every man and woman and child forever. Uh, this is the ultimate objective of all this. And why would they do this? Well, for one reason. Satan realizes that Christ gives us liberty. He tells us that each one of us human beings is created in the image and likeness of God. And uh, everything Satan does wants to attack that. It was this attack in the Garden of Gethsemane with, with Eve. Um, it, was, it, it is his attack with abortion in our own day to, to destroy that very concept of the soul created in the image and likeness of God, destined to immortal life, everlasting life in heaven with God. Satan uses abortion to uh, completely, again, destroy the idea of, of the human soul as, and the human being as a creature of God in his own image and likeness. And um, if, you look, if you look back in history, you find that Christianity is really the religion of human liberty. Wherever human liberty has taken root and has flourished, it has always been because it is based upon the principles of our Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel. All the other religions of mankind, all the other religions of mankind have been based upon uh, basically the idea of totalitarianism. They've all been based upon tyranny. They all lead to that tyranny, right? The dominion of the few or the dominion of the single. You might even say the dominion of the majority in Athens. But the absolute dominion and tyranny over the individual person, the individual person's conscience and so on. Uh, only Christianity actually stands for human liberty. And that's why the tyrants always have to deal with that. They always see as their inveterate, mortal enemy, Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, his teaching of the gospel, and our faith in him. They see that that has to somehow be suppressed and, find, and oppressed, and hopefully, in their minds, at least, totally uh, you know, annihilated. Because as long as, as the faith in Christ and the faith of Christ remains here, on earth, in the hearts and souls of men, there'll always be those who will insist on the liberty that Christ him promises through the truth. The only way to silence that voice once and forever is to silence the faith and to put an end to it. Every tyrant realizes that. The powers of hell realize that. And so those who are at the service of the powers of hell realize that this is really what has to be accomplished. They've seen over and over again their efforts have failed uh, because, as Voltaire said, if you allow even the memory of Christ to remain, the faith will rise from the dead. That's what he said, right? He, but this is what history has shown. No matter how 
you oppress the faith in, uh, in Jesus Christ as a son of God, our Savior, uh, no matter how you persecute it. If you don't succeed in annihilating it, it rises from the dead over and over again. Right? And so they are now in their end game, as it were, saying we have to annihilate this faith once and for all. And with it, the hope that it gives and the charity that it inspires we have to not only crush this, as emperors have tried to do, we have to obliterate it utterly. right? As Voltaire said. So this is what we're dealing with. This is what we're facing here. This is what they're really trying to do. No matter what other objectives they state, all of those objectives converge in that one thing. We have to destroy the very all faith, all hope, and all love for Jesus Christ. And our cry has to be, Viva Cristo Rey, only Christ the King. And we have to absolutely, with complete conviction and, and just invincible courage, stand up for the kingship of Christ and insist that he is the Savior, he is the Son of God, and he, by right, is King of every human being. And um, there and there alone can mankind find salvation. Absolutely. So, Father, thank you very much. God bless you. Well, thank you, Tom. I appreciate it. Again, sorry to be prolix here, but it's okay. you opened the door. Went through it. <laughs> it's okay. Thank you, Father. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima as you consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you. <laughs>